This podcast is brought to you by DIA, the trusted global neutral forum for healthcare product development professionals. DIA, driving insights to action. After another impactful year for translational science and precision medicine, it's time once again for a conversation with our Global Forum co-editors for translational science to discuss the milestones we've seen in 2022 and their implications for translational science in the coming year. I'm Alberto Grignolo, Editor-in-Chief of DIA Global Forum, and I'm joined today by our two experts in this field. Dr. Gary Kelloff, who has more than 40 years of cancer research experience at the U.S. National Cancer Institute. Welcome, Gary. Thank you. And for the first time this year, Dr. Lanny Kirsch, who is Distinguished Physician, Scientist, and Senior Vice President of Translational Medicine and Adaptive Biotechnologies. Welcome, Lanny. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the conversation. In their roles as co-editors, Gary and more recently also Lanny, have made it possible for us to receive and publish several timely and truly fascinating articles in DIA Global Forum this year, and we will make reference to those articles as appropriate during our conversation. Thank you both for joining us today and welcome. And as usual, uh, my first question to you both is this, and I will start with Gary, please. Gary, looking back at precision medicine and other advances in translational science in 2021 and 22, what jumps out to you as the most significant or impactful milestones and why? Thank you, Alberto. Of course, it's an exciting time to be in oncology research. Uh, we've seen a, uh, an acceleration of progress and we like the articles, obviously, that were in these last two years. Uh, one thing that stands out are several, first, I think liquid biopsies are increasingly being used in precision medicine uh, to replace or complement tissue biopsy and imaging. There's a lot of work in progress uh, in addition to what we had said and also during the year and going forward, you'll see a lot of activity. It's not just ctDNA, but also microRNA, RNA, the proteins eventually. And there's a tremendous amount of progress, I think, you'd like for the assay uh, specificity and sensitivity to know and so you know what its performance characteristics are. You certainly want it to be relevant for biology uh, and you'd like to have standards. And I think all of there's work in all of these areas going on. So we're very excited about that in particular. Second, I think the, uh, and Lani knows a lot about this, he co-authored with Irene Gobriel on the MGUS, finding um, multiple myeloma. Uh, when I was in school, it was a deadly and terrible disease with a lot of suffering. The monoclonal gammopathy of unknown significance was known, uh, but there was nothing to do about it. Now you can detect it, and uh, uh, recent work has shown the progression rates about 1% from MGUS to frank disease. And uh, over a period of a lifetime, it may be half of the people. So it's a very significant thing. Uh, many years ago, we wrote a lot about pre-cancer and the need to intervene. Uh, there are a lot of hurdles to intervening early, not the least of which you're, you're often working on people that are asymptomatic. And so you would not give this to your mother, you know, you, you would certainly uh, worry about toxicity. Also, there were no bona fide surrogates. So the, uh, the path for approvals uh, were long and large and trials were long and large and often the IP would expire before the drug was approved. So that's two. I would say that uh, the viral vaccines were of high interest to begin with certainly 
profound successes in hepatitis and in cervix, uh, not too much beyond that. And the big cancers, uh, colon, lung, prostate, breast, not a lot of viral vaccines, but the tumor antigen vaccines are in development. The MUC1 for colon has been done and shown to be effective. So those three come to mind, uh, Alberto, uh, okay. like a lot of what's going on, but those three come to mind specifically. Thank you, Gary. Lanny, okay. anything to add? What uh, excites you, Lanny, about what's been happening in the last year or two? Well, I, I appreciate what Gary has said. And just maybe at a more general level, the first thing that I've been struck by is because of the pandemic, basically, there is an increased public sophistication in terms of an understanding of the process of uh, biology and medicine. I was listening at one point now over a year ago to uh, basically a, a commentator on one of the cable news networks, and she was interviewing someone who was involved in the vaccines and unprompted, she said, well, but is that a T or a B cell response? And when I heard that, I thought to myself, this is absolutely amazing. Two years ago, the whole concept of immunology was foreign. And now we have an anchor on a cable news network so sophisticated that, you know, she's asking a question about sort of details of immunology. So, and I think that translates also into sort of a general public understanding or increased understanding of biology and medicine. Some of the landmarks are, you know, previously undruggable targets are now being found to be druggable. There is obviously a willingness on the part of regulatory agencies, not just to focus on one specific indication, but to look for those genetic or genomic markers that cross from one indication to another, which I think is a major advance. Also for regulatory agencies, there I think is a greater tolerance to use biomarkers, if not as surrogate endpoints, at least as recognized drug development tools. And then finally, obviously, there has been a, a tweaking of some of the initial breakthrough kinds of drugs like antibody drug conjugates or bispecifics or CARTs that are becoming more and more refunded. Great. Thank you, Landy. Let me stay with you, in fact, and, and follow up with a second topic that's very important and we published uh, back in the October issue of 2022, Microphysiological Systems, MPS. They are one of the emerging technologies that is suggested to expand from the exclusive use in drug safety testing for applications in discovery and preclinical development of oncology and other therapies. So question, Lanny, is how do MPS contribute to the ongoing transformation of the drug development process? And what are the challenges in moving their use forwards uh, into other areas? Yeah, well, thanks uh, for that question. I think it's obviously very important. And I think there's no question that microphysiological systems are an advance. Uh, how much of an advance, I still would say remains to be seen. You know, it's it's worth taking a moment and thinking about sort of a little bit of the development in this area. A few decades ago, you know, most drug discovery that was done outside of actual human trials was done on a murine leukemia line, L1210. And the National Cancer Institute actually undertook a, a major program where they compiled 60 cancer cell lines called the NCI60. And that became a very important and utilized target for drug discovery. I think that there is still debate over 
how successful or not the NCI 60 was. Interestingly, when I was at NCI, my lab actually took a major role in identifying all of the cytogenetic landmarks that were present in each of those cell lines. I also actually had close contact with someone in one of the medical oncology branches, John Minna, who actually made cell lines out of many, many patients that he saw in the medical oncology branch with lung cancer, and then would use those patient-specific cell lines in order to test drugs with the idea that he could translate the response of those cell lines directly back into regimens that might be useful for patients. Now, obviously, these microphysiological systems move beyond that because they aren't just looking at the cell autonomous cell lines, but they are more microenvironmentally relevant. So that can we move them forward into uh, things that you know, would impact patients uh, relatively soon, or are we still a long way away from that? I would say at this point, a lot of it is work in progress. There are still limitations, obviously. Drugs that require metabolism or the immune response or dilution and gradients, you know, they will not be addressed as directly, even in microphysiological systems, as in animal models. On the other hand, I do think that microphysiological systems may result in less animal testing. So that would be useful, but it's probably not a replacement. I think it may provide additional insights into off-target toxicity, which you've already mentioned. And I do think that the fact that it is maybe standardizable, for example, with regard to some of these things that the National Center for Advancing Translational Science, these tissue chip testing centers, I think that may be a very important uh, contribution because it will provide, again, a kind of standard that various kinds of therapeutic developments can compare and contrast using the same basic systems. Uh, Gary, just quickly, uh, Lenny mentioned NCI 60 and whether it's been successful. You're at NCI, Gary. Uh, has NCI yeah. 60 been successful? Well, I think for late stage disease, you're giving a bolus of live cells. I think it's uh, whatever limitations it, it has uh, been used. As you move earlier in disease and are more worried about uh, early disease or prevention or precancer, certainly those, those models will not work for you. And, uh, you know, cancer arises from a single cell and then you get proliferation. So a lot of the uh, assays using uh, induction of cancer by chemicals or whatever, and they all have their own issues. But uh, certainly uh, the number of assays have been expanded. Uh, Bev Teicher at our group is very smart. She's uh, been an editor of many things, and she's working on this problem. Uh, xenografts taking uh, cells from patients and putting them in animals is kind of hot right now, but uh, I'm not sure that that's proven itself yet. So a lot going on, a lot more to do probably. Thank you. Lenny, I'll, I'll come back to you. There is, as we all know, an ever-growing toolbox of technologies this time. So let's take a closer look specifically at digital health technologies. Portable and wearable consumer electronics have really become the fabric of our daily living, and they've spawned a potential for the integration of wearable devices into the cancer care continuum, have they not? 
So the question is, what are the most promising emerging opportunities for integration of wearable digital health tools into the patient journey? Specifically, what opportunities exist for more robust incorporation into current or developing precision medicine strategies in particular, Lenny? Well, as you point out, this is something that I think many of us are exposed to all the time. And it, I, you know, and it's becoming more and more sort of an international, enormous uh, database, which is, I would say, begging to be better explored and, and utilized. Obviously, you know, there are two aspects, I think. Uh, one is at the individual patient or the individual level where you have continuous versus point in time monitoring, you know, for the kinds of things, glucose monitoring or cardiac, et cetera, which can be obviously critically important in terms of dealing with some of the, again, adverse events that would come from the receipt of various uh, oncology therapies and getting a handle on those sooner rather than later. And then Obviously, at the population levels, you know, you have a real world experience, which is sort of an extension of patient reported outcome, because now you actually have real data that is coming from the entire population that you can choose, you know, might have received a particular regimen or not, which really, uh, I think, given the enormous amount of information, represents a really untapped resource. You know, with regard to oncology in particular, I think that it's um, going to be a matter of time. But if you can monitor blood glucose, the question is, can you also monitor plasma and look at circulating tumor DNA, you know, get real-time estimates of how tumor burden is responding to a particular therapeutic intervention? Can you measure cytokines? I've already mentioned, you know, some regimens that have perhaps side effects in particular organs, whether that be liver or heart or whatever, and can you get a better handle on that? Obviously, we can't discuss all of this without considering, you know, the issue of privacy concerns, which are always something that we need to think about when we're talking about this vast amount of data. I know that the All of Us project initiated by Francis Collins, which you know, is doing whole genome sequencing mm-hmm. and also looking at medical records for what a million or more people also had a component of wearables. And I know that the whole issue of privacy was uh, heavily explored and is still being explored in, in that regard. As far as early detection and prevention, I would defer to Gary. Yeah, in fact, I, I was going to follow up with Gary on that one. Thank you, Lanny. Gary, you had mentioned liquid biopsies at the beginning of our conversation. Do you see an intersection in, in synergy between digital health technologies and wearables and liquid biopsies? Yes, I do. As Lanny mentioned, I think it may uh, not be trivial, but I think you can measure these analytes uh, digitally. At some point, some uh, smart inventor will get it right. The wearables are are very interesting. We've got an obesity crisis. You can measure HB1AC, tell you whether uh, somebody with diabetes is in control as opposed to uh, a glucose tolerance test, which really is is a matter of hours because the half-life of red cells is, uh, I think red cells live 180 days, so the half-life is 90 days. So you get glycosylated hemoglobin attached the, the sugar attaches to the, so you get an integrated measure of whether somebody's been under control for 90 days. 
and you can adjust the dosing and people have wearables that, that monitor this stuff in real time. So certainly for the obesity crisis, it's there. And uh, I can see where you would be able to measure the analytes in plasma that relate to liquid biopsies. Uh, Gary, I have another question for you. Um, as you well know, several articles in global form this year, specifically in the February, June, April, and September issues, summarize steps for early detection or prevention, as well as targeted therapies for early stage and advanced cancers, including early myeloma screening, cancer vaccines, immunotherapies involving checkpoint inhibitors, and time-sensitive next-generation sequencing. The question is, what progress trajectory can you, Gary, expect in this area for other diseases? Yeah, we always try to think about that because diseases are obviously related and can our research help us with other diseases? Certainly in cardiovascular field, which has been ahead of, of cancer in prevention, certainly in the statin successes, uh, we've looked at data sets related to statin lowering of cholesterol and then looked at colon polyp lowering to prevent colon cancer. And actually, the surrogacy issue and the robustness of the data vis-a-vis -vis for colon cancer is probably a little bit better. So we respect the cardiovascular field, and uh, we think they've contributed uh, this recent COVID infection. You have uh, home testing for antigen tests primarily from Abbott and other manufacturers. If you have virus synthesis, you've got worse disease, and so you're measuring that. A lot of the mechanism for the retrovirus assembly was done, really, many years ago in the oncology field. And so you see it applying to the COVID uh, thing. I mentioned diabetes. Uh, I'm sure there are other examples. Certainly for cancer, you know, just measuring the activity of people with bad disease uh, and the wearables that can tell whether anybody's moving at home or whether they're doing okay. Uh, this field is coming. Patient reported outcomes are difficult because of standardization. Lenny, anything to add to what Gary said? Well, you know, I would say the importance of early detection and uh, of prevention goes hand in hand with the development of therapeutic interventions that are efficacious and minimally toxic. And I think that actually we're witnessing that happening now, because obviously if you can intervene early with something that does not have a major impact on quality of life, then of course, why wouldn't you? And so hopefully as that aspect develops, then the ability to take advantage of early detection uh, will become more and more important. Lenny, let's uh, take a closer look at the diversity of patients and their representation in clinical trials. So we know that's an issue. Many new precision oncology drugs prove less effective in real-world populations than they do in highly selected clinical trials. Clinical trial diversity is one step in the right direction, but equally important and less talked about are structural biases in the system. And we had an article about this in the October issue in 2022. Lenny, could you explain what these biases are and how we can overcome them? Yeah, and would like to give a plug to the Global Forum for bringing this issue to the front and for other articles that it has also published that may provide, at least in part, a beginning of a solution in this regard. So as you point out, it's a very complex problem. We miss 
certain opportunities. We are biased in terms of uh, the data that we generate, either because in a particular region, uh, there might just be a low percentage of certain populations that are uh, affected and therefore engaged, or because of, I would say, a more socio-political kind of thing, which is a practical access for inclusion in the kinds of trials that would be run. So what is the solution? Well, first, and I think this is happening now in a number of areas, including, again, the NCI and the NIH, specific outreach to particular uh, populations, proactive requirements for enrichment of certain populations in clinical trials. And, you know, we've touched on some other areas. And again, the Global Forum has sort of focused on some of these that may also aid in the solution, like less invasive, more acceptable and distributable means of gathering data in the real world, which would include wearables, which would include less invasive testing, plasma testing, circulating tumor DNA instead of biopsies, etc. And there was one other thing that I know, I think it may even be in the most recent issue of the Global Forum, which I think needs to be mentioned, which is this decentralized clinical trials, which I think can also play an important role in expanding the universe of individuals who are being studied appropriately and enriching the data set for uh, the kinds of questions that are being asked. Ideally, by making it more convenient for patients, uh, even from underrepresented populations, to participate in clinical trials in a way that is more convenient for them. Exactly. Gary, anything to add? No, I think this issue of convenience and diversity is very high, very high interest. And uh, a lot of data out there with the COVID that the zip code is, is more important a predictor of how somebody's going to do than, than anything else that you might know about them. So very important to get the diversity in these trials. In closing, Gary and then Lanny. What other translational science topics will be top of mind and importance in 2023? Gary? Well, I think digital pathology is coming fast. The pathologists have had pattern recognition and they've been doing a good job. They're at the final say whether somebody has cancer or not. And their clinical utility scores are very high, 90% plus or so. So they, they know when cancer is there. And most of the cancer burden is carcinoma. So they, they have these features that they can tell when there's invasement, invasion of the basement membrane. But digital pathology is coming fast and there's a lot more information uh, that needs to be collected and standardized that would allow uh, predictive value in a way that's easier and less descriptive. And so I think digital pathology is alive and well. I think Lani, uh, I will probably invite somebody for 2023 to write in this area. Second, I think the early detection prevention is alive and well. The Cancer Institute has announced a big multiple cancer early detection. There must be 10 or so large trials going on, some in the UK and, and other that are looking at screening uh, very large groups of patients, looking at specificity and sensitivity of the assays, how good are they? The standard immuno-oncology is going to continue to be of high interest, certainly the microenvironment and understanding these subtle changes that are occurring microscopically, whether it's uh, exhaustion or whatever. It is interesting to see that, that pembrolizumab, which has been quite successful, is working 
when you have PD-1, it, there's a lot of trials going on, but uh, it doesn't look as effective if you don't have PD-1. Gary, would the digital pathology address the problem of a patient discovering they have cancer and it's too late? In other words, would, the, would it provide oh, predictive uh, value way ahead of time, way upstream when interventions uh, can still be effective? I think they'll find it earlier with uh, standardized digital pathology and uh, more subtle changes that are not so obvious to the eye, uh, even though the pathologists are well-trained. So I think early detection will be there. Then, then you've got the issue of if I intervene early, will I have an effect on, on outcome? And I must have talked to 30 or so CMOs, CEOs, CFOs in my time about the value of chemoprevention. It was always, these are asymptomatic patients. We can't take any safety issues. And the trials are so large and long that the IP would run out before any definitive data was available. And I would say... The best example today is probably still colon, where uh, Sid Winner took out adenomatous polyps of a given histology and followed long-term and didn't, didn't see colon cancer. And it convinced the FDA that, that polyps of a certain histology were bona fide surrogate endpoints. And we use that. Uh, Lanny was involved in these studies quite a while ago. And uh, it's still a very accepted surrogate. Unfortunately, we need more. The MRD, uh, minimal residual disease is coming. And uh, once we know what that curve looks like, we may be able to call outcomes from a uh, MRD curve. And HEMONC is certainly alive and well. What's top of mind for you, Lanny, for 2023? And any comment you wish to make on what Gary told us? Sure. Well, first, yeah, let me just follow up a little bit. What Gary just said actually was where I was heading when I said, if there are less toxic but efficacious therapies, then earlier intervention becomes something that I think is easier to do and more acceptable, exactly for what Gary said, because of that say, you know, if I could if I could identify disease when it's present at, you know, one in a trillion of whatever the material was I was looking at and basically hand someone a glass of green tea and take care of it in that way, I would do it and the person would drink it, obviously. We're not there, but to the extent that we can develop these things, uh, the better. The other thing I guess I would say when I'm thinking about this is almost every question that you've asked, we have touched on the fact of large data sets, enormous information content, uh, et cetera. And so, I don't think that the importance of computational biology, bioinformatics, and machine learning can be stated enough these days in terms of how we are able to deal with these massive databases and extract the key information that we need in order to really move any one of a number of areas, therapeutic areas, diagnostic areas, et cetera, forward. Sorry, so serious data mining uh, is really going to emerge as a, as a need, an essential Ab need to be able to really capture the essential insights and move the field forward. Absolutely. And, and I hope that actually there will be some time this year, uh, uh, obviously it can't cover everything, but at least an overview of machine learning that uh, will come out in the global forum. And I'm hoping that that will at least set the stage for some of what we're talking about. And finally, yes. I can't help but just talk about the importance of, of immunology. Gary mentioned immunotherapy. You know, the immune system is a diary 
of uh, everything we've been exposed to of where we are and to some extent of where we're capable of going. And so the ability then to, again, it goes back into massive data, but the ability to read that and to somehow build on that in terms of both when the immune system acts for worst, you know, leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma, autoimmunity, et cetera, or for better, response to vaccines, response to infectious disease, et cetera, is something that I think is on its way. But I certainly hope that in the next year and in the years that follow, we will be able to tap into this enormous and evolutionary marvel even more. Right. Well, Lenny, thank you very much for these comments and thank you for participating in today's conversation, Lenny. Well, thank you. Gary, thank you as well for your thoughtful comments as always and for your efforts to make Global Forum timely and really uh, important as a topic of conversation, as a venue of conversation on translational medicine. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Alberto. Much appreciated. Stay well. Happy holidays to you all. For the IA Global Forum, I'm Alberto Grigno. To learn more about this topic, visit us online at diaglobal.org. Thank mm-hmm. you.